I'm sweating before I even start. Um, in just a few minutes, we're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Uh, we're going to look at verses 19 and 20 this morning. If you'd like to go ahead and, and find your way there um, in your Bible, or if you're using the Bible app, your notes um, are also in the Bible app, if you'd like to use that. Uh, they're on our website as well, if you happen to be on our website. But uh, we just witnessed a baptism. Uh, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself the question, why should I be baptized? Uh, as a pastor, I've been, I've been asked that question and many others focusing around baptism. And as we continue our study uh, on the church and, and what does the church look like in the, in the New Testament, I wanted to talk about the two sacraments of baptism and communion. And so this week we're going to look at baptism. Next week we will spend some time looking at communion. I have to be honest that I believe one of the sad realities of church history is, is that a subject that should be so unifying in the church among believers is actually a subject that's very dividing. Uh, Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 5 that there is one faith, one Lord, and one baptism. Yet we find ourselves in many godly believers differing on many aspects of one baptism. Lutherans, Episcopalians, the Orthodox churches, and the Roman Catholic Church all hold to the view that baptism affects the new birth. Since they all administer baptism to infants, they believe that when they sprinkle the water on a baby, that child is then regenerated. Now, granted, not everyone who identifies with these churches understands or embraces the church's official teachings, but the view that baptism automatically provides regeneration to you because of baptism is actually a heretical view. The reason why it's a heretical view is it contradicts the gospel of salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no ritual that's administered by anyone that can provide eternal forgiveness of sins. Most of our Reformed Church and Presbyterian churches also baptize infants, but they deny that baptism gives regeneration to those that are being baptized. However, what you, what you have to do is you have to really uh, kind of read their statement of faith and, and carefully come to that conclusion. Let me read for you what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the partly baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and to his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in a newness of life. And so the teaching is that the sign and seal are only confirmed when the baptized infant later comes to faith in Jesus Christ. So that's what many of our Reformed brothers and Presbyterian brothers and sisters believe. So, so it's kind of this, this uh, it's a sign and it, it's only sealed when you later come to faith in Christ. Now later I'm going to explain uh, why I believe uh, the biblical support for infant baptism is, is weak and actually potentially harmful. I know that this, this uh, message will be a little theological in nature. I think that's okay because I think it's important that we understand what baptism is and why we believe as we're a Baptist church, a Southern Baptist church, why it is that we believe um, baptism the way that we do it. So 
Um, let me just say that these men uh, of reformed character are far more intelligent than, than I am. Many of them are. Uh, guys like R.C. Sproul, who, who is one of my heroes in the faith, and um, they know way more than I do. They can run circles around me when it comes to biblical knowledge. Uh, I try to differ graciously with, with those who hold an opposing view as long as they believe in salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith uses the same language of the Westminster Confession. It says that baptism is intended to be to the person baptized a sign of his fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection and of his being engrafted into Christ and of the remission of sins. It also indicates that the baptized person has given himself up unto God through Jesus Christ so that they may live and conduct themselves in a newness of life. But rather than baptizing infants, it adds this. The only persons who can rightly submit themselves to this ordinance are those who actually profess repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, being willing to yield obedience to him. Now, I, of course, believe that this lines up with Scripture. That's why I'm a Baptist. That's why I'm a, a Baptist pastor, because I believe that that is the scriptural account. That's what we see all through Scripture. So with that said, I would ask that if you are willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's Word as we read these two verses. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. We read, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Let's pray. Father, take this word this morning, penetrate our hearts and our lives with it. Lord, however we've come into this place this morning, whether baptized, not baptized, whether, whether knowing Christ as our Savior, not knowing Christ as our Savior, God, I pray that your word penetrates us. I'm just a man. Proclaiming your word. Your word has the ability to penetrate our hearts and lives. And so, Father, I pray that I will faithfully proclaim your word this morning. And that we'll be a changed people because of your word. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So this message in a sentence is this. Baptism is a confession of our faith in Jesus Christ and is done in obedience to his commands. Baptism um, is a confession of our faith in Jesus Christ and is done in obedience to his command. I'm going to set out to make three statements this morning concerning baptism, and then my goal is to prove those statements biblically. First, I want us to notice this morning that baptism is an outward confession of an inward reality of your salvation. Baptism is an outward confession of an inward reality of your salvation. Wayne Gruden in his systematic theology says this, what does baptism do? What does it actually accomplish? What benefits does it bring? And as I stated earlier, we recognize that Lutherans, Episcopalians, Orthodox churches, and Roman Catholics believe that baptism actually gives new birth. Most Reformed Christians believe that baptism symbolizes a future regeneration when the baptized infant is old enough to come to saving faith. However, since not all baptized infants come to saving faith, they have to say that it points 
to a probable future generation. However, we're Baptists. We believe that baptism pictures an actual accomplished salvation. Not a might-be salvation, not a hopeful salvation, but baptism is a picture of an accomplished salvation. The person being baptized is outwardly confessing to everybody that they have faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ has brought genuine saving faith to them. Now, there are five things I want us to see under this heading this morning. First, it is a symbol of your salvation, not the substance of it. It is a symbol of your salvation. It's not the substance of it. So what I mean by this is the actual act of baptism doesn't save anyone. It never has, and it never will. When we look at the scripture, we see that overwhelmingly that salvation is by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 make that abundantly clear for us. Both the books of Romans and Galatians deal with the fact that we are justified, which is uh, just another way of saying that we are declared righteous by God, that we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ, not by any ritual or any good works that we can do. Those who want to say that baptism gives salvation, they'll usually go to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 38, where we read, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, if we take that verse and we separate it from the rest of the Bible, that sounds like you've got to be baptized in order to be regenerated for your sins. Now, if this were the only verse in the Bible on the subject, we could conclude that. But it's not the only verse in the Bible on the subject. There are numerous other verses that say nothing about baptism as a requirement of forgiveness of sins. The very next chapter of Acts, Peter encourages his ears, right? He says, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Repent and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out. There's no mention of baptism. Acts chapter 10, verse 33. He tells the Gentiles at uh, Cornelius' house, to him Christ all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Once again, no mention of baptism as a requirement of forgiveness. So then how do we explain this verse? Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Well, I mean, we have to harmonize that with the rest of the Bible, with the rest of what Scripture tells us. Salvation comes through faith alone. So how do we harmonize it? I believe the best way to understand Acts chapter 2, verse 38, is to understand it in light of its close connection in the minds of the apostles between belief and baptism. The fact of the matter is, the idea of being an unbaptized Christian was an absolute foreign concept in the New Testament. Saving faith is an obedient faith. However, Scripture is clear that baptism is, is always follows saving faith. So Peter added baptism as what was a naturally understanding the result of believing. You believe and you're baptized. However, it's not baptism that, that saves you, but it's repentance and faith that saves you. Baptism is this outward sign of an inward belief. It is the symbol of salvation, not the substance of your salvation. So let's take a look at some verses that show that baptism follows saving faith and um, that baptism uh, doesn't precede it. So those who received his word were baptized. 
And they were added that day about 3,000 souls, Acts 2, 41. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to baptize in the name of the Father, or in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Acts 10, 44 and 46 through 48. Then he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds and he was baptized at once. He and his family. And then he brought them up into the house and set food before them and he rejoiced with his entire household that they had believed in God. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Not one time do we have this report in the New Testament. They, they were baptized, and then they believed. Not once. Or they were baptized, they baptized their infants, who then later believed. Not one time. In every instance, it was believers who were baptized. Every single time. As a confession of their new faith in Jesus Christ. So baptism is a symbol of your salvation. We enter the baptismal waters as a symbol of our salvation. It's not the substance of it. Now notice, it's a symbol of cleansing from sin not the capacity of it. It's a symbol of cleansing from sin, not the capacity of it. There's no ritual, not even in the Old Testament, that gives forgiveness of sins, apart from the faith in the one that's doing the repentance and the ritual. The water of baptism is a picture of cleansing from sin. However, putting someone under water doesn't cleanse their heart, right? They can come out clean on the outside, but not clean on the inside. It is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that's applied to someone's heart that they can have a clean heart. And so when Peter is at the Jerusalem Council, he's explaining to them how God moved among the Gentiles and how they believed the gospel. And he added this, and he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts, not by baptism, but by faith. So what happens is they believed in we're baptized. The water is a picture of the cleaning, the cleansing that took place the moment they believed in Christ. Thirdly, we notice this. It is a confession of our identification with Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's a confession of our identification with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The word baptism is the transliteration of the Greek word baptisma. Some related words that mean to dip or immerse. Even the reformer John Calvin believed in the sprinkling of infants, and he writes this in the Institutes of Christian Religion. This is what he says. Yet the word baptize means to immerse, and it is clear that the rite of immersion was observed in the ancient church. So what happens when you dip or immerse an object 
uh, into a substance. Right? It becomes identified with that substance. Have you ever, uh, I don't know if you were younger, back when back when I was a, a teenage boy, or I don't even know, whatever. But back when I was a youngster, we used to do the tie-dye. You ever do that, right? So why do you do that? You dip it into a dye, and does that shirt, does your white shirt come out white? If it does, you got a problem with your dye, okay? If you dip it in there and it comes out and it's white, you've got an issue. The whole point is that it comes out all these different colors and you think you're real cool wearing your tie-dye shirt. I mean, not anymore. Like, if you wore that now, you're probably not cool. But back in my day, that was kind of cool. So, uh, but you do that and it, you immerse it in the substance that it's in and it changes what it looks like. It becomes totally identified with that substance in which it's immersed. The whole idea of identification is central to the meaning of the words. Water baptism by immersion symbolizes the fact that you believed you are now identified with Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The book of Romans, Paul says this. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead the glory of the father we too might walk in the newness of life the instant we believed we were placed in Christ that very instant and so our old life ended and our new life, lived under God, is resurrected by the power of Christ. Water baptism is a picture of this change. Buried like Christ in death under the water. Risen to walk in a newness of life. Fourthly, it's a symbol of our connection to the church. It's a symbol of our connection to the church. Paul states for us in the book of 1 Corinthians. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The primary reference here is just like Romans 6, is to this baptism of the Holy Spirit when he places a believer into Christ at the moment of salvation. However, notice that not only are we placed into Christ, but we also become members of his body, the church. Water baptism symbolizes our connection with the church, which took place spiritually when we believe. In the act of baptism, when, when a believer gets baptized, they are publicly identifying with other believers. It's, it's, they, they're saying, I want everyone out there to know I'm one of these people. That's what they're saying. I want you to know I'm one of these guys. These are my people. We're, we're together. We're a family. We're a church. We, we belong to one another. I want everybody to know it. In our culture, Christian baptism is pretty common. It's not a big deal to be publicly identified with other Christians. But there are countries where Christians are persecuted. And baptism separates the true believers from the false believers. Let me ask you this this morning. 
If your baptism meant that you would have a high probability of being martyred, would you still do it? Because that's the reality in other areas. What if your baptism meant that you would be cut off completely from your family and disowned? Would you still do it? I know that's not a reality in our country, at least not yet, but I'm stating that baptism should hold that level of commitment for those that are being baptized. That, that I am all in. I'm letting everybody know. It doesn't matter. I'm letting everybody know I'm now identified with these people. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Finally, notice this. It should be restricted to believers. Since baptism is a symbol of our salvation, a symbol of our cleansing from sin, a confession of our identification with Jesus Christ, and a symbol of our connection to the church, it should be restricted to those who have given a credible testimony that they've trusted in Christ for their salvation. To administer baptism to infants is just confusing, and at best, or at best, and it's detrimental at worst. I love John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion. He's a great expositor of the scripture in so many places. I would recommend them to people that want to go deeper in their faith. But I feel when it comes to infant baptism, he abandons both scripture and logic. He makes his argument from emotion. Calvin did a lot, of, uh, did a lot to counter his Roman Catholic upbringing. But he could not separate himself emotionally from the Catholic practice of infant baptism. Calvin makes arguments that others have made since him. But to be honest, they're confusing. Let me, I want to share with you this morning some of the arguments that John Calvin makes so that we understand why we believe what we believe as Baptists. Calvin writes this. But we must realize that at whatever time we are baptized, we are once for all washed and purged for our whole life. Therefore, as often as we fall away, we ought to recall the memory of our baptism and fortify our mind with it that we may always be sure and confident of the forgiveness of sins. So, if we baptize infants, it seems like Calvin is saying that we are washed and purged of our sins at that time. Let me ask you this. How much do you remember from being an infant? Do you have any memories of when you were like, you know, two months old? So how are you going to recall the memory? Because that's what he says you've got to do, recall the memory. How are you going to recall it? Later he says this, those who receive baptism with, with right faith truly feel the effective working of Christ's death and the mortification of their flesh together with the working of the resurrection in the vivification of the spirit. I can't even say the word. How can a baby receive baptism with right faith? They can't. How can they feel the effective working of God? They can't. Later on, Calvin gives an explanation on the symbol of baptism. And I agree with him for the most part. He then says this. These things, I say, he performs for our soul within as a truly and surely as we are our body outwardly cleansed, submerged and surrounded with water. That doesn't sound like an infant baptism by sprinkling. In fact, it sounds very much like a believer's baptism. But I make the contention that infant baptism goes beyond confusion. I believe it's detrimental. So if a person makes this assumption growing up, 
as they grow up and as they often do that, that, that believe this, that because they were baptized in, as an infant, they are saved. And they're a member of Christ's church. They're sadly deceived. Because there's no grace that's imparted to anyone by the physical act of baptism. Apart from the faith of the one who is being baptized, to depend on one's infant baptism as a ground upon which someone will stand before God and put their trust is a false hope. Only personal faith in a crucified and risen Savior will save us on that day. So why do sincere godly believers argue for infant baptism? I can't go into great detail in this sermon, but the main support for infant baptism is this appeal to its correlation with circumcision. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 state this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised you from the dead. Are there obvious correlations between circumcision and baptism? The answer is yes. But there are also many differences. The sign of circumcision was administered to the male physical descendant of Abraham under the Old Covenant. However, there is no command or example in the New Testament of administering baptism to the physical descendants of Christians, male or female. So if baptism is a fulfillment of circumcision, then just like circumcision was administered to the physical descendants of Abraham, so baptism should be administered to the spiritual descendants of Abraham, meaning all believers who are the true seed of Abraham. Yet when Paul is refuting the Judaizers, he never once hints that baptism replaces circumcision. Not one time. Furthermore, Jesus made it clear that the new covenant sign was not baptism, but it's the Lord's Supper, it's communion in 1 Corinthians 11.25. Also, Colossians 2, Paul speaking about believers' baptism. Infant baptism could not have put off the body of the flesh. He states explicitly that baptism pictures being raised up from the spiritual death through faith in the working of God. The parallel between baptism and circumcision concerns the picture of dying to the old life so that we can live holy lives in Christ. Paul is taking the spiritual meaning of circumcision and he's applying it to believers, not physical to the baptism of believers' children. Baptism is for those who have undergone circumcision of the heart through saving faith, not for infants that cannot believe. Finally, let me just say this. There's also the argument that household baptisms happened in the New Testament and therefore it supports infant baptism. So when Peter says in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 39, this promise is for you and your children. However, the verse goes on to say this, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And three verses later we read, so those who received the word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. There's no mention of infants to support infant baptism. It's, it's in any mention is so little that I can't even find an argument for it. I can't find any biblical support for it. I can't find once in the Bible where an infant's baptized. And neither can those who argue for it. You know how I know? Because I've argued with them. And they can't find support. And I've said, here, 
Here's my Bible. Give me one verse that shows a baby being baptized. You know what they always say? Show me one time where a woman takes communion. And then I take him to the book of Acts. And that's a whole other sermon. I've already preached it. Um, go back and listen to that. There's no support for it. That's why they got to appeal to things outside of Scripture. All of this is to say, baptism is an outward confession of an inward reality of your salvation. I got to hurry. Secondly, baptism is an act of obedience to Christ's command. It's an act of obedience to Christ's command. Yeah. Some people think that if they get baptized, there's some sort of blessing attached to the baptism. But that's just not the case. The act of baptism does not impart a blessing apart from faith. However, when we say that baptism is a symbol, we're not saying that there are no spiritual benefits to being baptized. I believe that God always blesses our obedience. In what is known as the Great Commission, Jesus commanded us, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The easiest way to put this is that if a person has truly believed in Christ, if they truly trusted in him, then obedience to his commands will follow. And a failure to obey would be sinful. This is why I personally believe that we should never withhold baptism from anyone that's trusted in Christ as their Savior. Because for me to withhold baptism from someone that's trusted in Christ as their Savior, I would be sinful. It's sinful to withhold the baptism, and it's sinful to not be obedient to the baptism. So if you've not been baptized and you know Christ as your Savior, then I would encourage you to do so. And I'd encourage you to do so quickly. Therefore, since all of this is true, thirdly, every believer in Jesus should be baptized. Every believer in Jesus should be baptized. So what I have noticed is that when we say that every believer in Jesus should be baptized, it tends to raise some questions for people. They're like, well, well, what do you mean? In fact, one of these questions that, that, that I'm going to answer was raised to me this week by someone um, by, through text message. So what I'm going to do is briefly answer three questions concerning baptism and um, this idea of every believer being baptized. First, how long should you wait before you get baptized? Secondly, how old should children be before they get baptized? And thirdly, should a person ever be rebaptized? So I'm going to quickly answer those three questions. I got just a few minutes, so quickly. How long should we wait to be baptized? I, I think that's a great question. I get asked often that question. And the reason I get asked that is because different churches have different views. Some believe this kind of, like you got to prove your, your salvation before you get baptized. I said, well, you got to prove that you've been saved. We've got to observe your life and make sure that you know Christ and, and before we baptize you. But that contradicts what we see in the New Testament, right? Because in the New Testament, we, we don't see that. Like, oh, well, you got to wait a while. you got to pass this theological test before we baptize you. 
No, they believed and were baptized. Your baptism is one of the first evidences of your belief. So you believed and were baptized. The modern idea that you walk an aisle, raise your hand to confess your faith in Christ, that was foreign. You didn't, that's not what happened. In our day, we have what's called easy believism. It's taken over and led to this superficial faith. And for this reason, it makes some sense to see some evidence of genuine conversion before baptism, but it, it should not be put off for, for years, like, oh, you gotta wait several years before we can baptize you. If someone is genuinely converted, it shouldn't be put off at all. They should just be baptized. Secondly, how old should believing children be? How old should believing children be? This is a tricky question. It's one that gets asked often. It's one that's got me in trouble before. <laughs> Believe it or not, I used to be an uh, interim children's pastor. I know that's hard to believe, though. There's no way. Probably scare kids, but, um, but I was. And this question right here, man, it got, it got thick at times, trying to just talk with people and walk them through. Because everybody wants their kid to be baptized. But if they don't have faith, then why would you baptize them? So how old should they be? Should we have a certain age? I believe it really depends on the maturity of the child. Different churches actually have age limits. But the child should understand the gospel and be able to give some evidence of truly being born again. And that's it. I don't feel like children must fully understand the meaning of baptism. Because you know why? Many adults don't even understand fully the meaning of baptism. They just don't. But they should have some comprehension of the meaning and the significance of baptism. And where things get a little troublesome is when a parent brings pressure on their child to be baptized. And I've seen this happen time and time again. The decision should be the child's decision in response to their understanding of the matter as the Holy Spirit is working in their life. It shouldn't be the parents saying, oh, well, you better get baptized. But it shouldn't be that child responding. Like, I, like, Mom, Dad, I just heard the pastor preach a message on baptism, and, and I know Jesus, and, and I, I feel like I should be baptized. You see, that's a response to the Holy Spirit working. And the last thing we want to do as a parent is be, oh, well, you probably weren't hearing the Spirit right. That would get us in trouble, too. So how old should they be? It depends on the maturity of the child. Lastly, should a person be rebaptized? Some people want to get rebaptized for various reasons, and I don't fully understand that. We have no indication in the New Testament where someone received Christ and then was baptized, and then later they got rebaptized because they had a lapse in their faith, or they gained a greater understanding of salvation, so they had to get rebaptized. If someone's fallen away from the Lord, the restoration for that person is not rebaptism. The restoration for that person is confession of sin, according to 1 John 1 9. So if you fall away, 
You know, well, I need to get baptized again. No. You need to confess your sin. However, believe it or not, we do have an instance of rebaptism in the Bible. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. Paul, he encounters these guys that had been baptized by John the Baptist, but they had never heard of Jesus. They would never heard of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells them about Christ. They believed and were rebaptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this suggests to us that a person that was baptized before they truly came to faith in Christ, and then later they come, so maybe they were baptized as an infant, or maybe they were baptized older, but they, they didn't know Christ when they got baptized. This shows us that they should be rebaptized as a confession of their faith in Christ. Now, that's partially what we just witnessed, right? I've, I've just outlined for you the difference between Catholic baptism and our baptism. And so somebody grew up Catholic and were baptized as a Catholic, not based upon their profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but they're lost when they get baptized, then after they come to know Christ, they should be rebaptized. It's a step of obedience. What if a person's not sure whether they were truly born again at the time of their baptism? I would say this. That if as far as they knew they were born again and were being baptized to confess their faith in Jesus Christ, then they should not be rebaptized. We all have times where we grow in our understanding of what saving faith is. But if they did not know Christ, they should be rebaptized. In conclusion, if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, but you've never made a public confession of that faith through baptism, then I would urge you to be baptized as soon as possible. I mean, after all, the baptistry is already full. <laughs> you don't need to drain it. So, if you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, don't think that just because you were baptized, or that if you get baptized, it's going to lead you to heaven. Eternal life is the free gift that God offers to all those who have trusted in Christ's death for their sins. You can receive eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to place your trust in Christ today, you can do so. You can place your trust in Him. You can say a prayer similar to this. You can say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God's Son, that you died to forgive me of my sin. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I turn from my sin. And I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. Amen. It's not a magic prayer. It's not the prayer that saves you. Christ saves you. Amen. He just says, he, he, we call out to him in prayer as an expression of our trust in him to save us. And if you said a prayer or something like that to trust in Christ and you want to know more about it, I want to follow up with you. You can come forward at the end of the message if you want to know more. If you need to be baptized, you can come forward. You can text the word faith to 309-328-3488 and that will start to follow up with you just by 
digitally, and then I'll see that and I can follow up with you. You can even do that in your pew. If you have come to know Christ, then confess your faith in obedience to his command through baptism. And if you've never done that, what are you waiting for? So why should I be baptized? You should be baptized if you know Christ as your Savior and you've not been baptized in the Lord. Plain and simple. Because it's an outward confession of an inward reality. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. I pray that something that was said here this morning spoke to someone, whether adult, whether child, whether lost, whether saved, whether baptized, whether not baptized. Lord, sometimes I wish I had all the answers, but I don't. Oh, but I know the one who does. So, Lord, I don't know where every person here this morning is at in their walk with you. There may be those that, that are listening online or they're even in the building that are far from you. Lord, I just pray that you would reach out in your grace and your mercy. You draw them. To you. Now for those that, that may hear this message, they may hear it today, they may hear, they may have just heard it, they may hear it next week, next year even. Those that hear this message, Lord, would you see fit to reach out in your mercy? Those that don't know you and draw them, God, to you. And for those this morning that maybe they do know you, but they've never followed up in baptism. Maybe for one reason or another, maybe they've been afraid. Oh, Lord, you cast out all fear. Maybe, they've, maybe they're anxious. Lord, you tell us to cast our burdens on you. There may be many reasons why people have never followed up. But God, I pray this morning you'd reach out to them that they'd take the first step of obedience that they'd be baptized Lord I just pray however you may have spoken to us this morning that we respond to your word I pray this in Jesus name Amen so we sing the Lord to come